Good morning. If you would please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. I'll be reading chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, oh Lord, was this not what I said when I was in my country? Therefore, before I fl uh, fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one that, ex one that relents from doing harm. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah went out from the city and so uh, and to the east side of the city, where he made himself a shelter and set, you know, and set under it in the shade that he might see what would become of the city. Then the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might sh be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as evening, you know, but as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then... Then he wished death on himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry, even to death. And then the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, but which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 peoples who cannot discern their right hand from their left and much livestock? And now let all God's people say, Amen. Let's pray together as we come to this final chapter of our study in the book of Jonah. Pray with me. Our God and our Father, again, we ask that You would be with us, Holy Spirit. We pray for Your help in illuminating the truth of God's Word to us. We pray, Father, that You would help us to understand the meaning of these words and especially their importance to us. Father, we pray that everything that You are revealing to Jonah about the sin in his heart would help us to see like sin in our own hearts as you continue to lead us and transform us by the renewing of our minds, Father, and to render righteousness in us and conform us to the image of Jesus. Father, may we be holy in your sight. And so, Father, we pray, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm guessing that as we come to the end of our study of Jonah here in the last chapter, 
that for some of us, as we read the final chapter of the book of Jonah, the way the story ends might seem a little bit strange, might seem a little bit odd in several ways. Is it, does it strike you that way when you read it or when you hear it read? Like what happened to all of Jonah's repentance from the time that he spent in the belly of the fish back in chapter 2? Where'd that go? Why is his attitude so lousy now? What's the deal with this strange plant that God causes to grow up over him and give him shade only to cause a worm to come and destroy it the very next day? What's going on there? And why does this story end as abruptly as it does? And God challenges Jonah in verses 10 and 11, and then that's it. There's no record after that of Jonah's response. There's no record after that of what happened next in Jonah's life. And one of the things that I find curious always in Scripture is, is when God asks questions to people. Because God already knows everything, right? So what's up with God asking all the questions that He asks Jonah three times here in chapter 4 when He asks things like, Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? That's always a little bit curious when the all-knowing God asks questions to His finite image-bearing creatures. Why does God do that? If He already knows the answers, why does He do that? Because He's not asking, obviously, for His own benefit. God doesn't ask questions to people so that God can learn something from the answers. He's asking for Jonah's benefit. He's trying to get Jonah thinking so that Jonah can learn something about Jonah, about himself. And this is how we need to understand this closing chapter of the book of Jonah, and the book as a, as a whole, actually. We need to understand it as a revelation of God's great sovereignty and holiness and grace, of course, everything about God. But we also need to understand that in all of God's holiness and sovereignty and grace, God had a purpose for Jonah himself in all of this. And it was a purpose that was largely devoted to exposing Jonah's sin and helping him repent and helping him then grow in grace, which is what chapter 4 is about. And the questions that God poses to Jonah here are designed to help Jonah realize all that. To help Jonah realize God's purpose of sanctifying him. And in that way, the whole book serves as the Holy Spirit's question to us, which would help us to recognize the same kinds of sin that are in Jonah's life in our own lives, so that we too can grow in grace ourselves. So that's why God asks questions in Scripture, see? Not because He doesn't already know the answer, but as a way to get His people thinking. As a way to help His people become aware of the sin in their lives so that they can be aware of their need of grace in their lives. So think about the book of Genesis, for example. Chapter 3. After Adam and Eve had sinned against God, they had done what God had forbidden them to do. They had eaten of the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God said, don't eat of that fruit. And then God came looking for them. Well, He knew where they were, of course, right? Omnisciently, He knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what they'd done. But He asked them in Genesis 3 and verse 9, where are you? And then in verse 11, he asked them, Did you eat of the tree which I commanded you not to eat of? 
And the whole purpose, see, isn't so that God can confirm it in his mind. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but i got to ask him and see what they... Of course not. The whole purpose was to get Adam and Eve to recognize the enormity of their sin. What have you done? They, they had disobeyed their Maker, the sovereign, eternal, almighty God. They were hiding from the omnipresent, all-knowing, almighty God. And they needed to understand the sin that was driving them to that. In the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4, we have the first murder in human history recorded when Cain killed his brother Abel. And God, again, God asked Cain a question. Where is Abel your brother? And the reason was so that Cain, see, would have to confess what he had done and give an accounting for what he had done in his own words before his God who is holy. So when God asks questions in the Bible, it's not so that he can learn something, it's to teach us something. It's to focus us on our inner selves and expose what's in there. All the shameful sin that we're guilty of and that we need grace because of. So whenever God asks his people questions in his word, we ought to then be asking ourselves, what am I supposed to learn from this? See, because God has preserved all this in his word for our prophets. And this is what the closing chapter of Jonah is all about. And this is what it's all designed to do to help us learn and to help us grow in all of the ways that Jonah needed to learn and grow. And Jonah needed to grow in terms of two pernicious patterns of sin, primarily in his heart. And those are, we'll see them today, self-righteousness and self-centeredness. So that's our focus here today as we come into this kind of curious closing chapter of this book of Jonah, which is the living and active Word of God, right? It's sharper than any two-edged sword and it's designed to expose the sin that remains in the deepest recesses of our souls. And God's Word is profitable, Paul says to Timothy, for our training in righteousness as it transforms our lives by the renewing of our minds. And that's what we want to glean from it today. And right off the bat, in chapter 4, we get a, a, a pretty clear picture, right, of, of what the problem is in Jonah's heart. He kind of wears it all over his sleeves. This, this problem that God is sovereignly exposing and dealing with. Remember the last verse of chapter 3, where we left off last week. It put God's great grace and mercy on massive display as when the people of Nineveh repented of their sin before the Lord, the Lord relented of the judgment that He was going to unleash on them. And instead of judging them, He had mercy on them. And the whole massive city believed God and was spared by the sovereign grace of God. What a, what a historic outpouring of God's goodness and grace and mercy and love. But Jonah in verse 1 of chapter 4, comes right out and tells us how exceedingly displeased and angry he was that Nineveh, Nineveh had been spared by the wrath of God and saved instead by God's grace. And in verse 2, it tells us why. Why is, why is Jonah so angry? 
Why is Jonah so exceedingly displeased? He prays to the Lord and he says, this is, this, I told you that I knew this was what you were going to do. Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, because I knew that you were a gracious God. Isn't this remarkable? And merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah goes, I knew it. I knew you'd go and be all gracious and kind and merciful and loving to those rotten, horrible sinners who don't deserve it. I think that's remarkable. After seeing this redeeming grace of God on display in such a profound way, and even before, by his own testimony, even before, back in chapter 1, when God told him to go to Nineveh, he was so sure of God's grace and mercy and steadfast love that he refused to obey God because he didn't want God to be gracious and merciful and loving. So he fled to Tarshish instead. He couldn't stand the thought of it. And now, here that it's happened... Jonah cannot contain his displeasure with God. I mean, can you even imagine harboring this kind of an attitude towards God? Let alone voicing it out loud, talking to God like this? I mean, it does make us question the depth of Jonah's own repentance when he was in the belly of the whale, right? Or the fish, right? Here's the bottom line of it. Jonah, by his own testimony here, he wrote this book. Jonah, by his own testimony, knows exactly who God is, right? Jonah's not under any delusions that the true God, the living God, is some brooding, capricious tyrant who just revels and takes glee in destroying people in outbursts of anger. Jonah knows that's not the the real God. God is inherently, in His unchanging nature, He is inherently gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and longing for people to repent of their sin so that He can relent of His judgment. That's who God is. And Jonah's outburst, Jonah's heart rebellion against God here is precisely because he understands this truth about God's gracious nature and because, bottom line, Because the truth of God's gracious nature towards sinners conflicts with the desires of Jonah's own heart. That's why Jonah's angry. Shocking, right? And as shocking as it is to see that conflict in Jonah's heart overflow in this outburst, isn't there a very real sense in which that conflict ought to seem awfully familiar to us too? Because there's plenty of, plenty of ways in which the truth about who God is comes into conflict with the desires of our hearts all the time and leads to our own sort of petty and, and pouty attitudes against God. God portrays Himself in here in the book of Jonah and all over Scripture as being sovereign, right? Over all of creation. And ordering things and appointing things like fish and plants in fierce east winds. Sovereign over every detail and every aspect of our lives. Ordaining everything. Causing all of it to work together for our good. We know all of that. We know it as, as well as Jonah knows that God is a God of mercy and grace and love. 
But understanding the sovereignty of God and the love of God and the goodness and the faithfulness of God doesn't stop us from being anxious a lot, does it? Doesn't keep us always from discontentment and from complaining and from bitterness and bickering when God's providence in our lives doesn't line up with our wish list. Well, this is what I asked you for, God, and you gave me something different. I have got a complaint now to file against you. I've got a bone to pick with you. This is exactly what's going on at the core of Jonah's being. And we see it most obviously here in terms of Jonah's resentment over God's mercy towards the sinners in Nineveh. What Jonah wanted, what Jonah was demanding, what seemed right to Jonah was for those awful Ninevites to be given what he believed they had coming to them. That's what he wanted to see, to get a massive dose of judgment, to get a, just a divine smackdown for their wicked ways. And so when God's anger toward Nineveh came to an end, and Jonah didn't get what he wanted, Jonah's anger burnt strong. So, what, why? Did, I mean, did Jonah forget here that he's also a sinner who also got saved from certain death and destruction under the hand of God's judgment because God gave him grace and mercy and love instead? The same God. Did, did Jonah forget that he's a sinner too? I don't think he forgot. I think Jonah knows he's a sinner. I just think he thinks he's a different kind of sinner than the sinners in Nineveh. And this is convicting too, right? Jonah's weighing his own sin on a different scale than he's weighing Nineveh's sin on. Jonah's saying, well, you know, there's sinners like me, and then there's sinners like those horrible people, right? People who really have it coming, right? We go like uh, Hitler belongs in that category. I don't belong in the same category as Hitler or Pol Pot or Bin Laden. Those people, right? Those really deserve the full force of God's wrath in a way that I, I'm not going to confess that I deserve it. So we like to put ourselves in a different category than the really, really bad sinners. That's what Jonah's doing here. And the problem, of course, is that is that human sinfulness cannot be measured relative to other human sinfulness. That's not how it works. Human sinfulness can only be measured relative to the infinite holiness of the Almighty, Eternal, Most High God. So Jonah sees himself in a whole other category as the sinners in Nineveh, meaning that he's absolutely sure that those guys are definitely very, very deserving of God's wrath, but he thinks that himself that he is less deserving of God's judgment. And so implicitly he's thinking he's more deserving of God's leniency and God's favor and God's, well, sure, God saved me from the belly of a fish because he's a great and kind God, but you know, I'm, I'm Jonah, I'm his prophet. I'm an Israelite. I'm a son of Abraham. He thought he was all good. So, in terms of his understanding of God's character, he had it right, both in terms of God's holy justice and God's loving kindness and mercy. Jonah had a good theology of who God is. 
What he had a bad theology of is who Jonah is and what his sin was. See? And how much he needed grace and that his need of grace was no less desperate than all of the people in Nineveh. And we got to get that straight in our own heads too, people. This is what is at the heart of Jonah's anger. It's his own pride. He's put himself in a whole other league from, from what he thinks are the real sinners. Tell me that same pride isn't lurking around somewhere in your heart too. Tell me that it doesn't fuel a response to other sinners sometimes, especially sinners who sin against you. A response that is less gracious, less merciful, less loving, less forgiving than the holy God of this universe has been towards you. All we like sheep have gone astray. There are none who are righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all owe an infinite debt and are all deserving of eternal condemnation because our sin, every single one of us, is measured relative not to Hitler and Pol Pot and the Ninevites, but to God's holiness. And none of us are holy as He is holy, not even close. And it's just simply arrogant of us to assume otherwise and to try to measure ourselves against other sinners and then sanctimoniously declare ourselves to be more righteous, less worthy of judgment, more worthy of grace, and then give ourselves permission to hold those other sinners in contempt in our minds, in our hearts, and in terms of how we treat them. And in terms of how we secretly hope God will treat them. See, this was Jonah's attitude. Centuries later, after Jonah, that same attitude was absolutely epitomized, exemplified in the lives of the Pharisees of Jesus' day, right? This is exactly what was going on in their hearts, and Jesus was constantly confronting it. You think you're better than everyone else. You think you're less sinful. You think you're righteous. Well, everyone else is a sinner. He's confronting self-righteousness. Luke 18, right? The wonderful little story of the Pharisee and the tax collector and the massive discrepancy between the attitudes of their hearts. The Pharisee's the one who stands there and goes, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not a sinner like the extortioners and the unjust. I'm, I'm not like the adulterers. I'm not even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean, don't we have that kind of attitude sometimes? Well, at least I'm, I'm, I'm faithful to my wife and I haven't killed anybody and I pay my taxes and I don't extort people and I go to church and I read big books full of theology, and I preach sermons. So praise God that I'm not like those people out there. God hates that attitude. The attitude God loves is the attitude of the tax collector that the Pharisee has just sanctimoniously compared himself to, but the tax collector lifts up his eyes to heaven and prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the attitude God loves. And see the difference in that story? The Pharisee is, is looking around. 
at all the other people around him and he's measuring himself relative to them and saying, I'm better than them. I'm more righteous. I don't do the sinful things they do. I'm, my holiness is relative to theirs. Just like Jonah. Putting himself in a, a more worthy category. Well, the tax collector wasn't doing that. He wasn't looking around at the other people and measuring himself compared to them. He's looking up. It says at the holy God and measuring himself relative to God and putting himself in the category of someone who absolutely desperately needs mercy because there's no way he can say that he's holy like God is holy. This is Jonah's problem. How about us? Are we like, when it comes to other sinners, are we like the prodigal son's father in Luke chapter 15 who rejoiced when his wayward sinful son came home? Or are we like the other guy in the story? Remember the other guy in the story? The prodigal son's brother? He didn't run off. He didn't squander his inheritance. He didn't go and live in worldly squalor. He didn't shame his father's name. But when his brother came home, his sinful wayward brother, he, he compares himself to the brother. And he gets jealous and he gets angry because the father rejoiced at the return of the wayward son and lavished him with mercy. And it displeased the brother. And Jonah was just like that guy. Convinced of his own self-righteousness and bitter at God for his lavish mercy on these real sinners in Nineveh. And his his contempt towards those dirty, rotten Ninevites was, was also compounded by his own hostility toward them because they were Gentiles. They weren't the Jewish people. They weren't the sons of Abraham. So Jonah thought that God's goodness and mercy and favor and blessing ought to be specially reserved for Israel. He didn't want these gross, disgusting, nasty, filthy heathens getting in on it. And it was all compounded by also his arrogant dissatisfaction with God's sovereign will. It really comes down to that. Again, the gracious character of God and the redeeming purposes of God just didn't line up with Jonah's own desires. And Jonah's own desires were formed and and fueled by his own self-righteous pride. And this is why he's so bitter and so self-absorbed that he can literally pray to God, just take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. He's literally saying, you want to give these guys mercy over my dead body? Literally. Is his attitude towards the sovereign, redeeming Lord. And so God confronts it all with this question in verse 4. Jonah Do you do well to be angry? You see the essence of the question? You see what the question's designed to do and to expose? It's like this. Jonah, what does it say about you? What does it say about what's going on in your heart that you're this angry because I was merciful to sinners? Just like I was merciful to you, it says that you think you're better than them. It says nothing good, Jonah. It says that even though Jonah had repented of his sin in chapter 2, and even though God had been so gracious to him, Jonah still had a long way to go 
in his own pursuit of holiness, in his own growth in grace. Do you see yourself in Jonah now? You know all those sermons and Bible studies where, where we lift somebody up as a great example of somebody really holy and righteous and good and awesome and strong and powerful, and then, and then we say, be like that guy. That's not how God does it, though, see? What God does is show us a bunch of sinners and say, you are like that guy. You're just like Jonah. All of us have this self-righteousness in us. And then God lifts up Jesus and says, he's the only hero. He's the only good one. He's the only holy one. And you need His grace. And you need His mercy. And when you receive it, He will start by way of that grace and mercy to transform you and conform you into His own image so that you can be like Him. We are Jonah. Jonah needed to recognize that he was absolutely no less dependent on God's grace than any other sinner, even the sinners in Nineveh. Jonah needed to recognize that the grace of God is not an offense to our sense of justice. Do you ever feel that way? I can't be nice to somebody. I can't forgive somebody. I can't be gracious to somebody because I have to have justice. That's how Jonah felt. You can't be gracious to them or else, or else justice won't be served on them. The grace of God is not an offense to our sense of justice. It's our only hope of salvation. And we need to learn that same thing. The inner Pharisee that looks around at other sinners instead of looking up at the Holy One and says, well, thank God I'm not a sinner like that guy at least. That inner, arrogant, self-righteous Pharisee who lives in all of us needs to die. And he needs to die daily. Needs to wither like this plant. So that as it withers, the heart that says, God have mercy on me, a sinner, can grow up and flourish and thrive instead. And then out of that will come a softness and a gentleness and a tenderness and a graciousness and a quickness to forgive other sinners. Even as though even as those sin against us. So self-righteousness was one of the key sinful attitudes that God is exposing in Jonah's heart by way of not just these questions, but this whole sovereignly ordained and orchestrated story. God wants Jonah to, to deal with his stuff. And in preserving all of this for us in the God-breathed Word, God also exposes the same thing in us. He does it for our profit. He does it for our good. He does it for our training in righteousness so that we can see our own self-righteousness. Tendency to compare ourselves to others and think we're better and look down on them and wish worse for them than we wish for ourselves. Self-righteousness. But that's not it, right? That's not all that gets exposed in Jonah's sinful heart or in ours. We could end the sermon right there if you wanted to. Go, that's enough. I don't need anything more exposed in my heart, right? We could stop right after verse 4. But we've got lots of time, so we're not going to. We're going to see what else the double-edged sword of God's Word digs up. So Jonah uh, throws himself a, a, a big old self-righteous petulant tantrum. And God asks him, do you, do you do well to be angry? And what does Jonah do in response to that question? I mean, 
What should he do? Oh, you're right, God. I repent. And what should he already have been doing, by the way, at this point in the story? After his own rebellion against God and after having been saved from the waves and from the fish and given a second chance like we saw last week and then witnessing perhaps the single greatest revival in the history of the world as the whole pagan city of Nineveh, 120,000 people we learn from, from chapter 4 here, they all repent and receive gospel mercy from the hand of the unimaginably gracious God. If Jonah's heart was in the right place, what would Jonah be doing? He'd be going, wow, they all believed God. They all got saved. The church is packed. There's 120,000 people coming to church now. And then he'd get busy starting to gather people around himself and mingling among all the people in the whole city and teaching them the Word of God and teaching them what it looks like to live by faith in God. He'd be encouraging their newborn faith and pointing out all of the habitual ways that their sin was conflicting with God's will and God's righteousness. He'd be teaching them truth and righteousness in all kinds. There'd be, there'd be non-stop Bible study and teaching and preaching and counseling and discipleship going on, right? That's what Jonah should have been doing. Instead of whining and complaining and throwing a tantrum against God. So when God confronts the anger in verse 4... What's Jonah do? Does he repent? Does he go, okay, you're right, you're right. I confess my pride. I turn from my sin. And then go and get busy shepherding his new flock of believers towards holiness. Is that what Jonah does? It's not even close to what Jonah does. Jonah acts like a proper toddler, doesn't he? God says, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah folds his arms, puts on his best indignant pouty face, and stomps off outside of the city. I'm going to take my toys and go out here <laughs> to watch what happens next to the city. He's hoping, no doubt, sitting out there watching what would happen next, it says. He's hoping, no doubt, that this repentance would be short-lived. That it would be a flash in the pan. That, that the repentance of Nineveh would, would prove to be false in the end and that God would, would end up destroying them anyways. That's what he wants. Well, verse 5 says he goes out there to the east side of the city, outside in the desert, and he builds himself a little booth, <laughs> a little shelter, a little shabby, little lean. It's the desert. There's not much out there to build with. So he gathers up whatever sticks he can scrounge out of the sand, and he builds this shabby little, little lean-to. I mean, seriously, he's like an angry little kid, right? He doesn't like what mommy and daddy told him to do. He doesn't like it that he got in trouble when he, when he disobeyed. So he throws a fit. He packs a little suitcase. He runs away. Like maybe a hundred yards away, right? That's what little kids do sometimes. I'm leaving. And then they go and they're sitting like out there pre pretending that they've like gone way off like the prodigal son. And what they're hoping for is that mom and dad will see how miserable they are out there and come out with a bowl of ice cream. And That's exactly what Jonah's being like. He's just being a little brat. So how does God... How does the Heavenly Father respond to that? Just like a good parent would. Graciously, patiently, and gently. I mean, Jonah's absolutely being pathetic here. Storming off, building his little hut. Who needs you anyways, God? I'm going to build my own hut. And God, like the wise, gentle, patient Father who He is, sovereignly appoints a... a a plant to sprout up 
seemingly overnight, and it, it comes up tall enough to come over Jonah's head with leaves that are big enough to give him shade, to save him from his discomfort, verse 6 says. I mean, what a merciful God. It's like the parent coming out there. Now the kid's sitting over there and pouting, and it's starting to rain, and so the parent comes out and kind of gives him an umbrella. When you're ready to come home, you let me know. I mean, what a merciful God we serve. God does not mirror Jonah's pettiness, right? God does not mirror Jonah's petulance. God doesn't say, well, fine then, go live under your stupid little hut. Let's see how that goes for you. God doesn't like burn his little hut down and flog him and lash out against his petulant prophet. God provides for him. And here's what is so telling about the place where Jonah's heart is at. At the end of verse 6, look at it. After God provides this plant to give Jonah relief from the desert sun, it says, Jonah was suddenly exceedingly glad because of the plant. And mark it, this is the one single solitary place in the entire book of Jonah where Jonah's happy. It is. Other than this, he's absolutely miserable. He's running from God. He's pursued by this storm. He's, he's despairing of life itself. He's thrown into the heart of the sea. He gets swallowed by a fish. Then he grudgingly kind of goes and preaches to Nineveh. And then he gets dis displeased, exceedingly displeased and angry when God is merciful to Nineveh. He's just, I mean, honestly, the guy emotionally is just a big, miserable mess of sinful, prideful, self-imposed misery until right now. Until God gives him this plant to shade his head from the sun while he sits there pouting in the desert. But the thing is, and of course God knew this all along, Jonah's exceeding gladness because of the plant wasn't any kind of humble gratitude towards the Lord. It's really just another manifestation of Jonah's proud, self-absorbed, self-centered heart. And that's now what God is exposing not just self-righteousness, but self-centeredness. God knows this about Jonah. And God purposed this plant and the destruction of the plant to expose it in him. So God's grace was only amazing grace to Jonah because of what it meant for Jonah personally. I mean, Jonah should have been ecstatic when 120,000 sinners repented and believed and were saved. But he was as far from joyful about that as he could be. He was only happy for this little plant and because of what it did for him. And the proof that he's just being self-absorbed and self-centered and, and not just self-centered, but self-circumference, right? Like, I'm at the middle and everything revolves around me. That's how Jonah is. The proof of this self-absorbed sin is that while he's so happy about the plant, while he's so happy about this blessing for him, he's still aloof and resentful towards the people in Nineveh and the blessing that they got. And as soon as God removes the plant and brings the scorching east wind, Jonah's anger against God continues to burn. Because, see, the source of Jonah's anger never left. He didn't mortify that pride 
inside. That self-centered, self-absorbed arrogance inside that says, it's all about me, and if God doesn't do what I want and give me things that I want, then I have a right to be angry with God. And it was that same self-absorbed pride that, that then was fueling his happiness when he got the blessing of the plant while still remaining uncompassionate and displeased and angry about the blessing that the Ninevites got. So, verse 7 tells us, but when dawn came up the next, God's timing's perfect, right? I'm going to wait till the uh, sun comes up <laughs> to appoint a worm to attack the plant so that it withers. And then verse 8, again, perfect providential timing, as soon as the sun arose, and it's hot out there in the desert, people. It's, it's, it's not like Felton in December in this part of the world, ever. It's hot out there in the sun, and as soon as the sun arose to scorch down on Jonah's head, and now his plant's gone, and his own little hut is pathetically inadequate, then God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And the key word there is that word appointed. Right? Just like the storm was appointed. Just like the fish was appointed. Didn't happen by accident. God is sovereignly orchestrating these things and He's doing it for Jonah's good. He's not doing it to punish Jonah. He's not doing it to make Jonah miserable. He's doing it to teach Jonah about his me-centered sin and pride, which was dominating Jonah's soul and dominating Jonah's life and paralyzing Jonah from being useful in God's kingdom. Jonah wasn't centered on God's sovereignty. Jonah's world was not revolving around God's will and around God's authority and around God's holiness and around God's faithfulness and goodness. Jonah's whole world in his own mind and heart was centered around himself and his own desires and everything was revolving around that self-centered, self-circumference. We are all Jonah. This is where all of his misery was coming from. This is why he's so frustrated and angry and bitter and disgruntled. And it's paralyzing him. He can't serve God like this. And neither can we. So now, his precious plant is gone. And he's back now to wallowing in self-pity. Wishing that he could just die. Verse 8 he asked that he might die and said it would be better for me to die than to live. Forget what would be better for the people of Nineveh <laughs> or anybody else. It's all about him. This is what's called self-pity. And John Piper very, very saliently and insightfully in his little book called Future Grace points out that self-pity is every bit the product of pride as boasting and bragging is. Piper says that boasting is what we do when our success isn't recognized by other people to our satisfaction. And that self-pity is just the other side of the coin. Self-pity is what we do when our suffering isn't recognized by other people to our satisfaction. They are both pride's response to the circumstances of our lives. And that cuts deep, right? 
Piper's exactly right, and Jonah is a prime example of it. All the woe is me, poor me, my suffering is so great that I should just die. This is all just the self-pitying regurgitation of a self-absorbed, prideful heart that's not humble before the Lord and willing to say, whatever my God ordains is right. And God omnisciently knows it, right? And so here he comes with the questioning again. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Again, the sense of it is, what does it say about you, Jonah, that you're angry about this plant? Well, this time Jonah answers the question and dares to try to justify himself, to defend himself to the holy, all-knowing, sovereign God, the God who searches the heart. God's saying, hey, I'm searching your heart right now, Jonah. What does it say about you that you're angry about this plant? He's searching his heart, right? God said to Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, the Lord searches all hearts. The Lord understands every thought and intention of every heart. So Jonah, man, are you sure you want to go challenging God on this? Jonah does. He's so stubborn. He says, you know what? Yeah, I've got a right to be angry. I've got a right to feel like I wish I could die here. Oh, shocking attitude, right? It's a good thing we never have this attitude. Good thing we never justify our own sinful attitudes when... God's Word exposes them for what they are and, and for where they come from and for what they mean about the sin that remains in us. It's a good thing we, none of us justify our self-pity and our discontentment and our anxiety and our bitterness and our anger by pointing to our lousy circumstances and saying, well, I, how else should I be? Of course I should be this way because we're centered around self and not around God and His sovereignty over everything in our lives. Again, in everything that God is doing here, He's appointing the plant to shade Jonah. He's appointing the worm to destroy the plant. He's appointing a fierce, scorching east wind to howl against Jonah in the hottest part of the day, right? Exactly when the sun comes up. And in confronting Jonah in his anger by questioning what it means about him, in all of this that God is doing, God is sovereignly working to expose the very roots of Jonah's self-absorbed, self-righteous, self-centered, self-circumference sin, and not in order to destroy him. God wanted to destroy him. He doesn't have to take this path to do it. He could just destroy him because he already knows perfectly the intentions of Jonah's heart and the sin that's driving all this. God doesn't want to destroy him. God wants to train him. God wants to expose his sin so that he can begin to root it out of him. And you know what? I think it was working because Jonah's the one who wrote down the words of this book in hindsight, in retrospect, and circulated it among the people of God in Israel. And it, and it became a part of the canon of Scripture so that it would be profitable to all of us. And I think that means Jonah was going, man, did I need to learn these lessons. Man, did I need to understand what a prideful, arrogant, self-absorbed, self-righteous person I was. And here's how God taught it to me, and maybe that can be useful to everybody else in God's family. 
And this is what God is sovereignly doing in all of our lives, right? Through every blessing, through every trial, through every circumstance, all of those things are sovereignly appointed for our good. All of them. Isn't that the truth that we relish and quote so often from Paul's words in Romans 8.28, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And we know that all things means all things, right? Not just the pleasant things. Not just the shade plants that God appoints for us in the desert times of our lives, but also the worms that destroy the pleasant blessings. And also the fierce east winds that destroy our comfort. Those are all appointed by God. We know this. They're all used by God for our good. Well, what good? What good purpose is God working all things together for? In Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 28. It's not the good of our comfort. It's, it's not the good of, of God conforming His will to our desires. What is the good that all things are working together for in our lives? It's spelled out in the very next verse in Romans 8, verse 29. So listen, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, next verse, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the good. That all things are working together for in your life. The pleasant blessings and the brutal trials are all sovereignly, divinely ordained means by which God is working to conform you to the image of Jesus. Not to make your life more comfortable. Not to give you every single thing that you desire. But to conform you to the image of the Son. That's the purpose that everything in your life has been appointed by God to do. To help us see the ways that we're not like Jesus. And to help us step by step and day by day become more like Him. In how we trust God, no matter what. And how we're willing to count the cost of serving God. And serving His kingdom no matter what. And how we're willing to suffer if it means bringing God's blessing to people that don't deserve them and aren't worthy of them because you know what? We weren't either and we're no better than any of them. And yet, the Son of God came to seek and save us when we were lost. And God wants to conform us to the image of that. And in how we're willing to forgive, even as we've been forgiven. How we're willing to bear someone else's burden of sin against us so that they don't have to bear it anymore. That's what forgiveness means. That's what God did for us. That's what Jesus did for us and does for us. So that we can become more and more about His will and less and less about ourselves and our desires. So that everything about us can start more and more to look like Jesus who laid it all down and sacrificed everything in order to save his enemies. Or is, is that who we look like? That's what God did for Nineveh. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what Jonah was not willing under any circumstances to do. And this is what he was angry with God for in all of his self-righteousness and self-absorbed, self-centered, petulant pride. 
And this is what God was working to wring out of Jonah for his good. For the good of his sanctification. For the good of his growing conformity to the image of God's own holiness and graciousness. Well, Jonah's heart is still pretty hard. Jonah is still stubborn, proud, self-righteous, self-absorbed. He's got a long way to go. We go, what's wrong with this guy? Do you, you think you've got less of a long way to go? There are so many days when I'm exactly like Jonah. He's got a long way to go in his journey of sanctification and conformity to the image of the glory of God who's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, right? Unlike, unlike any of us, we repented, we believed, we were saved, and then suddenly, boom, we were freed from all pride and all selfishness and all of the sin that grows up out of it, and we don't struggle with any of it anymore, right? We are Jonah. And we've all got a long way to go, right? In being conformed, not to some relative standard of goodness in this world, but to be conformed to the image of Jesus' holiness and Jesus' humility and Jesus' grace. So praise God. Praise God that He loves us enough. He's not punishing you. He loves you enough to work all things together for your good, including the storms and the trials and the scorching east winds that you're enduring right now in your life. He's he's lovingly using those for your good. Not to give you everything you want, but to make you more like Jesus. In verses 10 and 11, God brings it all home and He drives His sovereign, all-wise point straight into Jonah's selfish, sin-burdened soul. Look at it. The Lord said, You pity the plant, Jonah, for which you didn't even labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Should I not have pity on this city? You pity a plant? Why can't I pity the city? Which one is better? Which one matters more? See? It's what's called an argument from the lesser to the greater, and God designed it to destroy Jonah's self-justification and defense of his sinful, prideful, selfish anger. God argues from the lesser to the greater. The, the lesser is the plant. You're, you, you're all bound up about this worthless plant. You didn't even plant the plant. You didn't work for it. You didn't make it grow. God gave it to you. And then when God sovereignly took it from him, Jonah pitied the plant. More importantly and accurately, Jonah pitied Jonah. And God's point is simply... That where Jonah pitied the plant and got all upset when the same God who made the plant made the plant die, God Himself had pity on something far greater than the plant. God had pity on this massive city of 120,000 eternal souls who were so lost, it says, in their unbelief, their foolishness was so great that it was as if they didn't even know their right hand from their left hand. Sin had made them so blind in their minds that they didn't know the difference between right and left. Or, to cast it in modern terms, right? 
The sin in Nineveh was so great, it had such a corrupting impact on their hearts and on their minds and their ability to reason even, that they didn't even know the difference between maybe a boy and a girl. That's what's going on in our Nineveh. People don't know their right from their left. They can't even tell what a woman is versus a man anymore. And for the sake of their depraved desires, they were absolutely confusing and obfuscating everything that God had made perfectly clear. God had pity on them. On the ridiculously sinful, foolish, corrupt people of Nineveh. And Jonah couldn't have cared less about those people. Jonah got mad at God for it. And Jonah cultivated this this anger and this pride and this self-absorption. He nurtured it, this self-righteous attitude which caused him to pity a plant more than he would pity 120,000 immortal souls who would have spent all of eternity burning under the wrath of God's condemnation if God hadn't pitied them. You know what that means about Jonah's attitude? It means it's pitiful. In contrast to God's pity on sinners, Jonah has a pitiful attitude in himself. But do you see in this book where God's holiness and sovereign power over all creation and His gracious and compassionate love towards sinner where all of this is on such profound display, do you see how God all along was not just working to save the Ninevites but also to sanctify His proud and self-righteous and self-absorbed prophet. Again, remember, Jonah wrote this book down. He recorded all of this after verse 11. We don't know what happened to Jonah next, except that we have this book, which again, I believe means he looks back on his life and says, this is what God did for me. And it's what he needs to do for you. The whole point which becomes very poignantly clear in the closing two verses is that where, where Jonah's heart was mired and where his life was just miserable in all of this self-centered, self-righteous sin, the, the way out of that, the way out of self-consumed misery is to become not centered on self, but centered on God. Centered on the Holy One and consumed with all of His awesome holiness, all of His sovereign power and authority over all of creation in every circumstance of our lives, and to be consumed with His great glory in His compassion. Look how amazing this holy God is for not destroying everybody and me. And to be moved by His mercy and His grace and His steadfast love towards undeserving, unworthy sinners like me so that being focused on Him and centered around Him and filled with an awe and a wonder at His grace, we will start to become conformed more and more to the image of His holiness and the, and the graciousness of His Son. That's what grace does, see? Listen to Titus's words in Titus chapter 2. He says exactly that. He says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, anyone who will come. And that grace which has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live in self-controlled, upright, 
and godly lives. The grace of God trains us. Praise God for that. Praise God that He's full of mercy and grace. Praise God that He's slow to anger. Praise God that He's abounding in steadfast love and He's patient and He's kind and gentle with all of our imperfections, with all of our failures, with all of our petulance and self-pitying pride. Praise God that He sovereignly works all things together for our good and conforms us from one level of glory to the next to the image of Jesus. Praise God that His Word and His law expose the sin that remains in us, but not so He can destroy us, but so so He can point us to the fact that His grace has appeared, bringing salvation to everyone who will come from all around the world, and that that trains us to renounce our sin and to grow in holiness. And so the end of the message is, keep your eyes fixed on Him. Not on yourself, not on your circumstances, not on everything that's going on around you. Keep your eyes fixed on the eternal, holy, almighty, sovereign, righteous, gracious, merciful God who has loved you and saved you to the uttermost. And let His holiness expose your sin. And then let His grace train you for righteousness and conform you to the image of Jesus who came to lay His life down for us all. Amen? Let's pray to Him today for the humility that we need, for the holiness that we need, for gratitude and for grace, for the wisdom to trust Him in all these trials of our lives that He might continue to grow us and conform us to His image. Father God, thank You for this remarkable book which recounts for us the great story of Jonah and all that You did not only to save 120,000 people that we might call unredeemable out of Nineveh, but also, Father, to sanctify Your prophet and to confront him with the sin that still remains in us as well and to show him, Father, the self-righteousness that he was guilty of and the self-centeredness and the pride that it was all rooted to that he might be humble because of the grace by which he himself was saved. And that in being humble, he would become more and more conformed to the image of you, Father. Your holiness, your righteousness, your mercy, your grace, your love. And so, Father, we pray, have your way with us. Rest our souls in Jesus and give us grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together in